Hi, you guys want some cookies? 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 Welcome to the Virtual Garage. Welcome to another edition of the Throwback Podcast. My name is Dan Hansis, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my bosom buddy, Bubby Castron. Hey, Bob. Hey, buddy. How you doing? Good. How are you? We are separated by 3,000 miles, and, and I, I just long for your touch, Bob. You're, in, wow. you're over there in Georgia for your television program. I am, and that statement would make me uncomfortable. Even if we weren't joined by one of your former co-workers on this very special episode. That's true. Maybe this personal talk about how I long for your touch uh, would be less awkward if there wasn't another man in the room, the virtual room. And he is the man, the great Dave Damashek, long awaited. We've wanted this for so long on the Throwback Podcast. And now here we are. Sheck, welcome to the show. Yeah, it is uncomfortable because you said the exact same thing to me not 11 hours ago, Dan. So your lies are starting to fold in on themselves. Not only is the Sheck appearance long overdue, this album is very long overdue for a podcast specifically for people who were born in exactly 1980. This is the... I mean, this is is our our glory zone, this album. And, and, um, you know... I'm glad it worked out this way because if we would have burned through Siamese Dream, um, like in 2018, we would have been like, "Oh, but we should have had somebody that truly was there on the ground floor when the when the album and the band, the Smashing Pumpkins with Billy Corgan, were blowing up." And that was Dave Damashek, and that's why when um, I connected with Dave and he was nice enough to come on the show, the Pumpkins were the band that kept coming up because Shaq before. And many people know the Sheck backstory as a legendary man, as you are. You've been in Southern California for years now. But before that, you had an extended run before. And, you, of course, you began uh, in Pittsburgh area. But now, you, but in, in between these two stops, you had an extended stretch in Chicago, which is where the Pumpkins were from originally, right? Yeah, it was a, a savvy move as it, as it turned out for me. I didn't know what I was doing exactly, but uh, things broke just right for me. Um, as I left Indiana University, I graduated, and it's kind of Chicago is kind of just as Atlanta, I assume at least, I believe this is true, is the SEC, ACC kind of extended college graduate thing. Everybody treats it sort of as the mecca to extend the, uh, the college years through the 20s. That's what Chicago is for Big Ten people. And um, so, yeah, so I moved up to the north side um, when – as a hockey fan, the Pittsburgh Penguins were upset by the New York Islanders in overtime in Game 7, and I was deciding, should I sign this lease with my pal Reggie in Chicago, or <laughs> should I stay in Pittsburgh with my pals Richie and Brett and, st- and sign a lease there? And I really was debating back and forth. There were so many virtues to both sides. Um, and then David Volick scored an overtime goal against the Penguins, and I was like, I'm getting out of here. And I went and signed the lease. Now, all these years later, you know, I would still rather the Penguins have won a third straight Stanley Cup. But things did work out to some degree with the move to Chicago. And, yes, as soon as I got there, the Smashing Pumpkins were just about to break big. Gish had just come out, a tremendous record, one of the great indie releases in terms of sales and otherwise. I really think even to this day, 
Um, and so they were a hot band, you know, and, uh, you know, big in Chicago because as you say, they were from Chicago and then Smashing Pumpkins, uh, I mean, and then uh, Siamese Dream came out right around the time that uh, Reggie and I moved into the north side of Chicago. And so, yeah, they were everywhere, uh, saw them uh, a few times up there along with a, a bunch of other bands. Um, it was a, it was a splendid place to be in your twenties, um, running around chasing bands with the, with the music that was popping at that time. It was, it was just a heavenly, um, window of time for me. Yeah, that is cool. And you, you mentioned Shaq that, um, Gish, when we were talking about what are we going to do Gish or Siamese dream and Gish to you, is that just because of it? They kind of were a phenomenon. Um, and maybe that, Sometimes, like, with Siamese Dream is such a massive album, you end up becoming more attached to the album that gets a little less love. Is that why maybe you were on the fence about which one we wanted to talk about today? Or do you just like the other record almost as much? No, I, I, honestly, I if I had to choose, I can only hear one or the other for the rest of my life, I think I would choose Gish. Um, but um, also, there's that thing that people try to deny in themselves. But, you know, if you're if you find anything, in fact, Indie bands are the reference that people you uh, tend to use as in the analogy of of like, oh, I was in on that before anybody else was. There's a certain pride in that, and when people then bring up once the band makes it big, you're like, oh, there that studio album is a little too polished. You need to listen to their original work when it was raw and, and all that. So maybe <laughs> right. that's maybe maybe I'm trying to tap into uh, to uh, a, a hip young Dave. Well, there was never such a thing as a hip Dave Damashek, but um, maybe that had something to do with it, but I did for what it's worth. I was aware of Gish and loved it. So when Siamese Dream came out, it really was something. I, I, I gotta say, as it happened, things just broke in such a way that, you know, I, as I land there, Siamese Dream blows up and it felt like, boy, we're really in a great place if you love music and we're in our early 20s and Michael Jordan and the Bulls are dominating basketball and, you know, as soon as summertime would roll around, going out there for, you know, $15 and buying a bleacher seat at Wrigley and, uh, and, and you know, drinking beers all day in the sun and otherwise, it really was just a, a, a heavenly existence there for, you know, pretty much all of my 20s. And, and it really was um, in part because of that music. We had in our apartment... Um, one of those five disc changers, if you remember those things. I don't know those three days. Oh, of course. Guys. You, you guys oh, yeah. were. No, you, that was huge. You guys were rolling deep with a five disker. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and it and it would uh, and it would. I think it would rotate songs. Um, but I think, but I remember Siamese Dream was in there. We had uh, Porno for Pyros in there. We had Picture of Nectar by Fish. I mean, it was like I I can tell you for 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 months we wouldn't change we would change only like one disc and it would just go from song to song and we would go to the same bars every night and then bring whoever we met at the bars that night back to our apartment and stay up till four or five in the morning i mean seven days a week this went on for uh for at least the first couple of years that we were there it was just uh, it was just the best the thing about that time though if you drunkenly stumbled into the wrong apartment and pressed play on the five disc changer in 1993, it would be those same five CDs in every apartment owned by uh, 22-year-old white guys in all of Chicago, probably. 
funny enough that you would mention that. Uh, my friend and I once did exactly that. We went into somebody's house. He's like, these are my friends. These are my friends. And let's wow. see if they're up because, because it's really late. And so we can't really find a new establishment to go into. So we went into, in, into this place and we found beers in the fridge and we cracked them. And they're like, well, let's keep it down because they're upstairs asleep. Nobody's down here right now. And they had a pool table and we shot a game of pool and we enjoyed a couple of beers and then we made our way home. And then we found out the next day, oh yeah, we were in the next door neighbor's house, not his friend's house. We just <laughs> went down there. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, youth. It's, it's, it, it, I feel so far away now. Everything <laughs> feels so far away. Uh, but that's, that's what we're doing here. We're remembering uh, the early 90s and the Smashing Pumpkins and where we were at that moment of the time. And Dave, one thing we do before we get into track one and Siamese Dream kicks off with a monster track one, we like to f uh, further frame uh, the moment in time and talk about what was big on the charts on the day the album in question was released. Before you hit, and yeah, uh, sorry, to, yes, I was going to say before you hit that number one song though, I wanted to mention that the album came out on July twenty seventh, nineteen ninety three, the same month as Dan's favorite album ever, Zuropa. I mean, I wouldn't say nope. it was my favorite. It's album on record. Ever, it's on record it's now. It's on record now is your favorite album ever. If it's if it's a U two album that came out in the nineties, mm -hmm. I do adore it. If it's Actung Baby, Zuropa, or Pop, I am all in on all three of those uh, fine records. Oh. But yes, uh, we've we've covered Zuropa on this show. Boy, that's no a brassy that take also. from Hanzu's. Pop Pop ranks among <laughs> yeah, the U two. I love Pop. I'm, let me guess. I'm thinking. I adore Pop. I think In Utero came out that year. If I'm not mistaken, it might have been, well, it couldn't have been 94 because. I think uh, you're right. Cobain yeah, no, it was uh, dead fairly early. That was, uh, and that was October 93. I saw at the Aragon Ballroom on the north side of Chicago, I saw Smashing Pumpkins and I saw Nirvana on the In Utero tour. And I also think um, Pearl Jam's second record came out it, towards the tail end of not or no that would have been earlier in 93 yeah maybe that would have been yeah i think yeah probably i'm gonna say uh january of 93 ish is when that one came out sounds right 93 94 and even 95 i thought those are monster years so many good uh so much great music came out of that time did you have anything else there bob well i was gonna throw out that bjork's debut cypress hills black sunday and Akinelli's debut album Vagina Diner also came out that month. So. Is it is it have that song that everyone knows? No, this is before that song that everyone knows. So. Uh, yes. You know that song that everybody knows, uh, Shaq? I don't. I have no idea what it's that. Very is. explicit. It came up when it's extremely it came explicit. up when Colleen Wolf was on the pod. That's uh, yeah. right. Right. She actually knew all the lyrics, and it was you know a real eye opener. All right. I'm not surprised so, to hear that. We get... I don't work blue. She, she you know she delves into that X-rated job. Exactly. That's who no. she is. That's true. So before we get to uh, track one, we like to go down and check out the charts. What was big uh, when Siamese Dream was just dropping? And here is Shaq, the number one song in Canada. On the last week of July in 1993. Oh, you feast your ears on this one because I completely forgot about it.
All the moms, get up. Remember how big Tina Turner got when that movie came out with Larry Fishburne? Can I just see Tina Turner's nipple there? Oh no, I, I thought I just saw it. <laughs> Big chorus, here it comes. That was big. That was Bob. We've talked about it before. The uh, Bob and I, as many people in our hometown shack, had the... It was kind of like the scrambler cable box that had all the channels you can get illegally that fell off the back of a truck. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they had that where you were from, but I don't know. So maybe it was in New York, yeah, New Jersey. Probably thing. Fine, like, hey. fine, upstanding citizens in Pittsburgh. Not so much in the suburbs <laughs> of New York City. I, I, so I, I, the box had... No, I was going to say the box had two... They were called request channels, and it was the pay-per-view channels. <laughs> and so any movie... And then if you had... You know, it was the 90s. There wasn't a lot to do. If you were like a teenager... You would end up just watching these pay-per-view request movies on your uh, legally obtained box. And when, um, what was the name of the uh, Tina Turner biopic? It was, uh, What's Love Got to Do With It? Uh, With Angela Bissett uh, and Lawrence Fishburne. I ended up watching that movie 47 times. Like, why would I, why would a 13-year-old boy be watching that movie? But it was just on all the time? Because it was just loop on that channel, and I would just watch... Tina Turner just like overcome a lot of adversity in a big spot. So this song right now is going to, you're going to connect to this more than anything off of Siamese Dream. Let's just be honest. I would say yeah. so. I would say she's got, what what a tale she told in that film. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Unless my ears are betraying me, I, I, I have to tell you, I've never heard this song in my life. I have not, I, I, I have well, no you were, you were you were way too cool by now. We were still, we were. Yeah, you were too cool at we that were, point. We were 13. We were listening, you know, riding in our mom's station wagons with minimal control over the radio. You were, you were hanging out at bars in Chicago seeing a free Siamese Dream Session pumpkin. Were you? I mean, you're allowed to have missed that one. Were you guys, uh, had we reached a, a station as a society uh, when you guys were in the station wagons where it was frowned upon to sit in the way back, just loose like uh, groceries? Because that's how, that's how me and my peers did. It was just understood, like, yeah, jump in the way back. You all stink. Yeah. Whatever, whatever activity you're coming from, sit in the way back and you just roll around and everything insane. And also, the, the pay-per-view <laughs> thing, there was a literal switch. We, would ha- we had four or five channels um, growing up uh, when I was a little kid, and you would literally have to get up and flip a switch to get HBO to come on. And people say, like, why do I know every line from Seems Like Old Times, the Chevy Chase, Goldie Hawn, uh, Charles Grodin movie? It's because at that, pu- at that time, HBO showed like the same half dozen movies all month on a loop, and whatever was on, right. that's what you got to watch. I've seen Flash Gordon. <laughs> 
973 times start to finish. And it's another movie I could probably quote, uh, quote uh, start that's, to finish. That's how Bob and I fell in love with uh, Just One of the Guys yeah. in the mid-90s, <laughs> which is a movie that really... It predated us. We It was 85 that movie came out. So I don't remember when it was actually in theaters. But for whatever reason, HBO played it for an entire summer in like 1994 or something around then, 93. And um, I, me and Bob, obviously, and then all my cousins, like we knew every line of the movie because you just ended up watching it, mostly because of Joyce Heiser's topless scene at the right. end. But, there, but the movie itself, so you just found yourself watching it repeatedly. She's a great... We- Go ahead, Bob. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. I was going to pull it away from Joyce Heiser. I want you to continue on the Joyce Heiser thought. Well, yes, please. As always. As far as Joyce goes, I have to do a proper list. We should do a proper list of this because they occur to me all the time. She, as far as I know, I never saw her in any movie before or after that picture. That was the only thing I've ever seen her appear in. The other thing that stands out to me above all else in that picture, aside from Johnny Lawrence, uh, again, playing the heel, um, the all-time great teen bad guy, there's no question about that, his holy uh, trinity of, sure. of evil movies. We don't need to go over those. But the other thing is the pretentious pronunciation. And the guy's supposed to be like a music hipster, the guy who falls in love with her, and he doesn't know why he's attracted to her. <laughs> I know, we but he's we know exactly what you're about to say. We know exactly Cindy, what you're about to say. Let's say it Please together. Go. Ready? Say it together. Ready? Cindy Cindy Lauper. Cindy Lauper. <laughs> you're one of these jerks who are uh, uh, that ridiculous. Yeah. It's, am- it's amazing. We used to say that all the and time. This, you'll, you'll get a kick out of this, uh, Shaq. Um, about, I'm going to say it was about seven years ago now. They had uh, a reunion. It was like the 30th anniversary, I think of just one of the guys and they got the whole cast back together and it was right down the street from where Bob used to live silent movie theater on Fairfax. Right. So we, we got tickets and we went and a lot of the cast was there. And one of my favorite LA moments ever happened that night. So Bob and I, um, we had a few drinks at Bob's house and then that's an important part. That's an important part of the story that we started at my house. Well, that's not even the part of the story I'm telling. That's not what makes it a, we got, we got in trouble at the theater, but that's different. (laughs) So we, we have a couple drinks and we're loose and we're, we're taking the walk to the theater. We're excited. We, we, it's going to be a fun night. And I'll never forget this. As we're walking about two blocks away from the theater, a cab pulls up and Joyce Heiser and her husband get out of the cab. And we're right behind her about, you know, five steps behind her. She doesn't maybe 10 steps. I don't think she'd really notice that we were there, but we knew it was her. Cause she still looked like and Joyce Dan, and Dan great, being actually. a creep knew exactly how many steps we were away from her too. <laughs> Seven and a half right. steps. Um, and I, I remember being, you could hear her like she had nervous energy. She was going to this premiere and it just was such, it struck me as such a serene, great LA moment. Uh, this movie that we had fallen in love with that was just completely from a forgotten time. And now she was having her big star moment again on this one random Saturday night in October of 2013. And we were there. She was like approaching the theater. And then all of a sudden people noticed her and it was like she was getting applauded. I don't know. That was just kind of a cool mo- moment. I don't know why. That's mar- no, well, very cool. Of course, it's marvelous. But did, please tell me that she winds up after her dipping her toes into the into the journalism waters. She came to her senses and married the the college age boyfriend who she treated so. That's who she's married to. Yeah, that's who she's. Kevin. That's who she's yeah. married to in real life, of course. Yeah. <laughs> what a head. He of was there. They were. They, they were all there. Oh. We got pictures with a few of them after the show, including the uh, the gym teacher, 
that's obsessed with bowling. We have uh, yeah. <laughs> we met that guy. What do you do when life uh, rolls you a seven ten split? <laughs> Yeah. Aim for the ten and let it rip. All right, let's get let's get into Wait, the album. That's not uh, Siamese Dream. Oh no no, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of Jay Tarsus. I'm thinking of uh, of Teen Wolf. I'm sorry. Okay, I, 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 I got confused. That's the best Come high on, school Dave. coach. Let's, let's sharpen up here. Sorry, you're right. Go ahead, please proceed. <laughs> All right, let's let's get into Siamese Dream now. It starts off with a bang. One of the singles. In fact, the lead single um, on Siamese Dream is a classic. Uh, alternative rock. Let's listen to it. It is Cherub Rock. Corrigan, um, a famous perfectionist and general pain in the ass, uh, the record label wanted uh, the second single, eventual single, Today, which we'll get to, and it's one of the big hits of the 90s, to be the lead single. He insisted it was Cherub Rock. Uh, he turned out to be wrong because people didn't really embrace this song in terms of chart success the way they did today. But, Sheck, there's no denying that this is a great fucking rock song. I, I mean, I don't want to get hyperbolic, but to me, this is one of the great opens on any record that I've enjoyed listening to in my lifetime. I mean, I really think, you know, the first few seconds, Jimmy Chamberlain, the key to the band, of course, music uh, musically, um, on those drums uh, and, and that rolling sound as you come in, almost military sounding. Um, right. And, you know, when you hear it, sort of in this context or otherwise it's it, it it is Corgan's voice is is really almost alien you know it, it there's something so distinctive about his sound it's it's inhuman on some level but uh yeah just a dynamite opening track <laughs> as far as I'm concerned yeah I don't even know how I would describe his voice if somebody asked me this like what would you say like it's you know, it's not. Well, he's is he's like the ultimate. Well, maybe Dylan would be the ultimate example. But when you talk about like rock music or in general popular music, you don't have to have a a classically beautiful voice to be successful. Obviously, and like I guess what he sells his voice on is how emotive and unique it is. But it's certainly not a pretty sounding thing or something that. But it, but it kind uh, of is. You know, but it, is easy on the but it ears. Kind of is pretty. It's like a whiny pretty, which which is a weird combo. Whiny pretty, I like that. It's not yeah, as thin though. If you listen to like as a for instance, what was happening a decade later, as that as the uh, the 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 more tepid incarnations that followed, you know, from 
Nirvana down the, you know, I guess you could say that this kind of is an offshoot, I don't think directly, but as you get into like turn of the millennium, those voices are thin, like Blink-182, whoever the front man mm-hmm. is for that. Right. It's just a crummy, you know, ham and egg or, uh, you know, providing vocals. This is distinct <laughs> and has a, has a strength to it. And, you know, Dan, you said that, you know, the Billy Corgan was wrong about leading off with that single. I would argue he was right because their career all worked out and today came next and you already had this out there to maybe maybe wet the palate of certain people, just kind of start things off, and then you hit him with today. Maybe that's why Billy Corgan's a genius. Okay, well, there you go. He's got you brainwashed um, because that's what he does to people. He's, he's a psychopath. We'll get to, I have I have a reply to that when we get to today, but I, I want to let it be out. The basic background of this album is famous on its own that there was a ton of pressure around Billy Corgan specifically, but the band um, after Gish. And there are a bunch of things going on. So he, Corgan is going through a breakup with his girlfriend and he's going through all sorts of uh, mental anguish and he's having suicidal thoughts and he's dealing with the the worst thing any rock star can deal with, uh, weight gain. He's gaining weight. So he's got that going on. You got Chamberlain, who Sheck mentions, one of the great rock drummers of the decade, has a horrendous, heroin addiction that almost kills him many times over. He famously on the next tour, uh, he gets high with the keyboardist, the touring keyboardist, and that guy dies. Um, and he gets kicked out of the band. And then you have Eha, James Eha, the guitarist and the bassist. And I always struggle with the name. DRC Retsky. Did I get it? I'm just know. Darcy. I don't think you have to say DRC. They, Do they say it? They, uh, Dave, Bob, I don't know if you know this, they were banging Bob and that relationship disintegrated. So you had a rumors Fleetwood Mac thing going on. And then on top of it, Billy Corgan, completely insane to the point that he's re-recording all of the musical parts of everyone in the band besides Chamberlain. Um, that Dave, was, I know that I've was worked with you it. in the past. They didn't like that at all. <laughs> right. I know, I know that they, right. were, I do remember that being a story that they were PO'd about that. And I do remember young pretentious Dave thinking, man, oh man. I like the music a lot, but lyrically, who is this pretentious ass? <laughs> what what is the meaning <laughs> of any uh, any of this nonsense? Steve Malkmus from Pavement famously took a shot at them too on uh, on Range yes. Life on the Pavement record. T- took a shot at like That's yeah, right. Doesn't, uh, they have no function. That, that, that they that, I, again hitting at the same thing. Anyway, on to track two. All right, let's move on. Here is Quiet. I mean, boys, listen to this quote. Billy Corgan 
told Spin around the time of this album release. You know, I gave them a year and a half to prepare for this record, referring to his bandmates. I'm surrounded by these people who I care about very much, yet they continue to keep failing me. Wow. <laughs> who says that? I mean, besides you after you recorded an Around the NFL podcast, I can't remember ever right. hearing that. Other than other that. Than other than that. that. Peyton Manning talking about That's his teammates. That's my favorite quote. Yes, what, Bill, what Peyton Manning is to his teammates on the Colts. This is a Billy Corgan is that for <laughs> the rest of his band. You, what do you think of Quiet? You failed. What do you think of Quiet, Dave? I, I, you know, as because uh, I, I, like I say, Chair Brock's, well, maybe I didn't say, that's my favorite track on, uh, on the whole album. Um, and this is a pretty strong follow-up to immediately I was engaged with the record and this one was, uh, this is a great second track too. Not that it doesn't rank up there for me probably and uh, the win play show stand, but, uh, but a strong effort nevertheless. How are you doing as a, um, not to swerve into the personal day, but how are you doing as a swordsman in the early nineties? Oh, not well, in Chicago. not well, not well. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's been a lifelong battle for me. Um, you know, my, you know I, I, my, my going rate is about uh, one woman a decade, you know, duping one woman. Um, and, uh, so I, I was able to fully focus on my, on my passions of, uh, of sport and music and, uh, and staying up till the wee hours of the morning before it was time to go bartend the next day. But, uh, yeah, not, uh, not great with the ladies. Do you, do you think, do you I, think it's I, because at the end of most dates, you just look at them and say, you've disappointed me? You think <laughs> I think you're confusing me with the hands. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, we mentioned a little earlier about like the idea of, oh, that's when I was cool. Like I never, I never felt there was a time in my life where I was cool. Like I, I, I don't think, I don't think that's a thing that I, and I think there are a lot of people that maybe mistakenly, uh, think that they were cool sometime in their life. And uh, Shaq, you, you always had, you had a great observa observation about everyone thinks they're funny, even like people that aren't funny at all. I think it was something along that. I, I hope I'm not misquoting you. Uh, but I think there's a large portion of people that look back in their youth and say, oh, yeah, I was cool back then, but not but weren't at, at all. I'm so resentful of those people that they that, that they aren't saddled with uh, with the self-doubt that apparently you and I both have. Yeah, I, I right. People will tell you. <laughs> That they're not smart, they'll tell you that I oh, know I'm not the best looking guy in the world. But what I, you know, and they'll be like, "Well, you're so much nicer than I am." The one thing that people have a hard way, uh, have a hard thing acknowledging, is that they don't have a good sense of humor. Even if they don't think of themselves as a wiseacre, everybody thinks they get the joke. And the irony is that might be the one quality that people are the most off base on. But the cool thing is also true. true. I'm so resentful of people who think they're cool. And it would be weird if, for me to approach them and disabuse them of that notion. So I have to bite my lip um, and let, not let them know that we all get that they're not actually cool. Um, but, uh, right. but yeah, it's a, it, it, you know, I, I, to, to, to walk a day in, in the shoes of somebody who feels self-possessed and confident and, and happy and cool, what a thing that must be. What's it like, Bob? I I kind of feel like this is a backdoor way of you guys telling me I'm not cool. I feel like this is, but you know, Dude, let me ask you a question, Bob. I, I feel like I know you just about as well as anyone does. Um, 
I'm going to say when you were living in the East Village on the Lower East Side in Manhattan and you had your cool little MTV job and you had your apartment and you were throwing the parties, I'm going to say, and you had, you grew your hair out a little bit and you're looking a little bit like one of the guys in The Strokes. I'm going to say that I think that Bob thought he was cool for a stretch there in the mid-aughts. That, yes or no? Be honest. That is correct. <laughs> I think there was a window. I think there was a little window where I, I'm not going to say where I was actually cool. I think there was a little window where I felt cool. And, and were you, you a cock? Well, I think, like, I think you're a cool guy. And, you know, I'm not. Like, I love no, 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 Bob. No, obviously not. But it was in that window. It's you're, You identified the right time frame. And I'll go further. It was when I had this, <laughs> I had a blog that people were like into. The blog. You know, it was yes, kind of part of this little blog, blog world at the time in New York City. And I had just started doing these online videos with um, Jason and Brian before before YouTube. So it was kind of like there was no there weren't a lot of people doing it. And we put our first like, you know, 15 videos on the Internet. And we went to Montreal for a friend for a friend's bachelor party. And on our way there, we got recognized at the airport on the way there. We got recognized in Canada. And it was like, holy shit, this is pretty cool. I'm kind of like a. Kind of, am I cool? And I never said I was. In, I never pretended to be in the Strokes. I used to say I was in Stella Star when I had to lie. Right. Well, that's smart. It was a much lower, yeah, you don't want to do much lower bar to clear. But um, that all that all went away just as quickly as it came, for the record. <laughs> and when I moved, I remember like living in LA and actually working with actors who were actually cool, and like going out with certain people and just being out and being like the confidence that these people had was a right. thousand times anything I was ever capable of holding. And it just made me realize that not only am I not cool, I was never cool, and I will never be cool. There's a different level out there, like Dave was saying. But it and really doesn't wish, matter, I just ultimately, wish I right? I just how to walk in their shoes. But ultimately, if you spent a period of, uh, I wouldn't, let's say, 18 months to two or three way, years way too long. thinking you were no, cool. No, way too long. It was like, it yeah. was like five months. All right. Well, it doesn't matter whether it was true or not. You felt it, and that must have been nice. No, but deep down, you know? soul. <laughs> deep down, you know. All right. Let's uh, move to track three, and that feels like something we got to touch on, Bob. Again, um, down the line. Uh, this is the song. I would say it's probably the biggest song ever, uh, but that is certainly up for debate. Cause they continue to pump out hits as they went along for a couple of years. There. Here is, yes, of course, today.
All right, released September 30th, 1993. It's the second single on Siamese Dream, and it's the one that exploded. And I would say um, that that intro with just the you know the single guitar, and we're all musicians here, Dave. You know mm. we know how to talk shop. Uh, when you have Eha or probably Billy Corgan playing James Eha's guitar, just uh, with the single guitar, and then the crashing and that crunch of the guitar is one of the most famous intros, if not the most famous intro of any alternative rock song this side of Smells Like Teen Spirit. Yes or no? Boy, that's, uh, yeah, that's a strong statement and probably spot on. Um, and like you say, that that fuzzy guitar sound that uh, that um, I at least associate, I assume most people associate with Smashing Pumpkins, sounds a lot to me like if you ever know the band uh, My Bloody Valentine. It feels like that's, it, it probably comes from there but yeah there's a, a, a funny kind of uh, uh, on face a cheese factor to this song it just for me is it, it's personal because it's as I say it's right when I got there and while this is happening um, Michael Jordan's playing Chaz Barkley's sons in the finals and we had just gotten there and we're in the big city <laughs> on the north side it was all possible it was all it was all it was just making plans for the rest of our lives and Let's, you know, the, the conversations you have filled with hope and who knows what. Ah, just listening to this as the soundtrack. Yeah, that, uh, this one uh, hits home for me, even though, like I say, it does have a hint of cheese to it. Yeah, I would never, I would never say that. I would never put the word cheese next to the song. Hmm. Why do you think that? That's interesting. Well, because they're literally serving ice cream while they're, while they're doing it. It's a little sugary. It's a little, <laughs> little saccharine. <laughs> I mean, the song is about his suicidal thoughts. At I the know time. it is, but and it seems that would, way. He's, I know it's. I think I love. I kind of like that as a in general a uh, a move that happens in music when the songwriter has like an obvious like uh, a, a big almost sunny song, and then he like slides in super dark lyrics, which is the move that obviously Corgan went with here. Yeah, I wouldn't say this is like my favorite Smashing Pumpkins song, but I, I I do, I think it's pretty close to like a perfect alternative rock song of the era. I, uh, maybe is it, is it because in a way that it's so omnipresent, uh, it's it, on any radio station right now, it's playing somewhere on an alternative rock station that gives it more of a cheesy quality uh, check? I, I keep, I'm confused about that. Let's get into it a little bit more. Well, I mean, uh, just uh, like I say, on face, today is the greatest day I've ever known. Not, okay. not, not as uh, doom and gloom um, as uh, as uh, most grunge Quite songs. a voice, by the way, Dave. Thank yeah. you. I, I, I don't even know. It's funny because I don't know that you, would, uh, that you would call this grunge. Uh, you don't call it punk music. I'm not even sure what this brand of music is, but I do think, to their credit, one of the best things is I know people like and hate the Grateful Dead, depending where you come down. But the one thing you can say is at, you, you can hear three seconds worth of Jerry Garcia and know it's Jerry Garcia playing the guitar. I kind of think that's true of Smashing Pumpkins, too. I think you can hear just a I little agree. bit and say, like, oh, I know that's I, precisely who that band is right there. Yeah, that was today. That was one of those songs. Go that ahead, was one of those songs in 93 as we were, you know, 13, starting high school. That was one of those songs, one of like a very few songs that turned me into an alternative rock fan. It just kind of got to me in a way that a lot of the music at the time wasn't kind of getting to me. And it just, uh, 
every time you would hear that guitar in the beginning, it would just be exciting that this is alternative music. Like this is that next big thing for, and, for music. And I think that's why, Bob, like going back to what you are talking about earlier with Trev Rock, which is a great rock song and, and certainly is now played a lot. Uh, again, if you listen to any alternative rock station today, Cherub Rock is going to get played somewhere. But when you have a single as functionally perfect as today to kick off your album, it might have, not that it really matters ultimately, but it might have allowed a song like Cherub Rock to do better later on. I mean, I think it, I, I just think when you have something locked and loaded like this, that's just perfect radio. Um, Corrigan was wrong, nope. Bob. I'm yeah, sorry. Disagree. I know you, no. you're team Corrigan. This is, this is like when we argue about like when the Yankees would make a trade and they would trade like the player of the future for some piece of shit. And then they would win the World Series. And you would say afterwards, like, oh, man, it would be great if we had Russ Davis back. And it's like, no, we just won the World Series with the guy that we got. So that was a good trade. No matter Public. what. So who's Russ Davis in this? <laughs> Public you? perception. Wait, no. <laughs> I, I'm with I, Well, wait, who am I with here? I think I'm with Bob because I like. I think Chair Brock sets a different tone than today being the first single might have. It would have maybe been a little bit like Weezer, like, ooh, wee, ooh, buddy, holly. Like, I, I, they, 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 I didn't fancy <laughs> but, them right out of the gate, whereas I did this record. And I don't know. I wonder if the public at large would have reacted differently if it would have played like pop rock if today is the first single. But Weezer set the table with the sweater song for people. It's like, here's who we are, get used to us, and now here's a catchy single that's going to be way bigger than the first one. Hmm. Maybe I'm starting I'm sorry, to realize can this I'm podcast that... just be... <laughs> I don't know if I'm that big. <laughs> can this podcast just be Shaq? Yeah, that's fine. Right. Can this podcast just be Shaq singing different hits of the 90s? <laughs> I feel like that that would be more successful. Um, uh, Blender, remember Blender? Oh, yeah. That was, that was a music magazine. Describe this uh, today as having achieved a remarkable status as one of the defining songs of its generation, perfectly mirroring the fractured alienation of American youth in the 1990s. There's another thing. Like, I I wish I was cool, but I was never cool. I wish I could be the guy who can hear a song and be like, oh, yeah, this is about the fractured youth of America. <laughs> some some like people hear a song like, oh, yeah, that's about alienation. I, it usually takes me... Not not even like a hundred spins reading someone else saying that to get oh, things come like on, that. Oh, wake up! Look at what you do for a living. How many frauds? <laughs> how many frauds have you encountered over your time of of supposed pro football experts who who are down to break down who's a good offensive lineman as if they have any idea whatsoever? These, these people, the, the, the people That's who. That's true. I mean, there are so many people. I can't believe. Hey, do you know so? People ask all the time. Hey, do you see what so and so? said about blank football player, blank football team. And all I can think of is like, yeah, if you would talk to that guy for five minutes, you would realize he doesn't really know very much about what he's talking about. Just complete pap. And you're, and you're lapping it up. It's the same here. Music critics. Do you really think that they're, that they're divining the, the, the true meaning of the song? Or are they writing something that sounds good? I, I'm going to go with the latter. Call me a cynic if you must. You know what? I like I like the way you put this and not just because it makes me feel better about myself. I think you're right. I think they and then these things, these narratives, people take it and run with it and everybody writes about the same thing. And then you ask the artist himself, 
in an interview like seven years later. So what was that song about? It has nothing to do with what everyone assumed the song was about or wrote about. No, they always feel no, like right. they always. Right. Yes. An artistic endeavor is easier for the artist to let people off the hook because they say an artist will typically say, hey, listen, if it moves you, whatever it is about that, whatever it means to you, then I, then I'm, I'm happy with that. Whereas an offensive lineman is more likely to say, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Shut up. Stop talking about me. But yes. Uh, I, would I, would, right. I would love to hear an offensive lineman say the former. That would be <laughs> <laughs> That's true. All right. Here's uh, up next is uh, a song called Hummer. Break into the wrong apartment. <laughs> well, the worst thing about Corgan and what he did was that I read that D.R.C. Gretzky, Wayne Gretzky's daughter, um, <laughs> actually sided with Billy Corgan. She's like, oh, actually, you know, I know people think it's a bad look uh, that he's recording my guitar parts, my bass parts. But he can do uh, what takes me forty takes. He can do in three takes. So I don't know if she, I don't know if like <laughs> DRC Gretzky and Eha were living in fear or something of this guy. And even in the interviews, they had to play that off. Or if she actually her self worth had been deflated so much by being in a band with this monster that that was just the type of answer she would give and not think that was a strange answer to give. Well, I mean, I guess you have to make a decision with uh, with the man or woman in the mirror at some point. It's like being on David E. Kelly's writing staff. Are you just going to bask in the reflected glory and cash the paychecks that you get every week because David Kelly's writing every script, but you get script credit a, a couple of times a season? That's that's a choice. That's, that's what uh, Ms. Exactly. Ms. Gretzky had to do, you know? Are you are you offering me that gig? Because I'll take it. I don't know if that <laughs> they get in line, friend. <laughs> what do you think about Hummer, Shaq? It's a good one. Now we're starting to get into the place in the album where, they, uh, where they're changing tempos the whole time. That's a, a big part of Smashing Pumpkins music is uh, those, those changes in, um, like I say, in tempo and therefore mood. It's a good one. Yeah, we have a, uh, a term... We have a term on this show, and I'm not saying this qualifies, uh, but we call it mid-album filler. And uh, uh, every once in a while, uh, it pops up on an album, and we'll identify if, if it's a strong album cut or if it's actually more a filler side, uh, so people can decide where they stand on Hummer. I don't think I don't think it's a. Uh, mid-album. You think it deserves a little more respect? A little, yeah. I mean, it's not a single. I'm glad you've, uh, you've right. tackled Let's... that because I resent it. I resent when bands do that. that that's some balls. <laughs> yeah. That's some balls to, 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 to 
uh, throw something in there because you think it's a cute inside joke and I have to sit through it in the middle of the album, you know? <laughs> well, sometimes sometimes it's an inside <laughs> joke and sometimes it's a song that you know deep down that they know isn't that great, but they still need to fill out 12 to 15 tracks. So they're putting it in there on track eight. You Listen, know, like if they're... If, seven, if, if this is Corgan, like, yeah, I know I recorded over uh, your takes there, but... Uh, Hey, uh, Ms. Gretzky, you know what? Make you feel good. If this if this is band politics and trying to boost her self-esteem a little bit by giving her the four slot, okay, you bat clean up. But I, I mean, I, <laughs> I am fascinated. I would love to talk to the great uh, record producers or record makers in history and say, what is the logic? What's the strategy behind laying out an album? Why is the best song on the whole album in the eighth slot? Shouldn't that be like, shouldn't it be approached more like a baseball lineup? You know, shouldn't shouldn't you have? Uh, Isn't that usually what it is? Isn't track three kind of sacred ground in an album? And just like the number three hitter in baseball is typically the best hitter on the team. Four is a cleanup hitter. He's the power hitter. I feel like there's some connection there. I'd love you to go through. That? Well, I, I listen. You guys have a whole show devoted to it. It'd be cool to go through the greatest three songs of all time, and the greatest four songs, and the greatest middle of the lineup songs ever. Three, four, five. Things like that, you know, what pitcher can hit, you know, that kind of a thing. Who's who's bringing up that, the rear that and, like, and still yeah. powerful, you know? That sounds, that, sounds, that sounds like exactly the kind of show that Dan wouldn't put any effort into producing. That's exciting. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a, a big lift. But it's, it's, it's not an accident that today is track three on Siamese Dream. Here is uh, the next song. It is another single, I believe. I will double check that. But this is Rocket. And we heard, um, we heard Beck's favorite song off this album earlier we're about to hear my Ooh, okay so listen me, i'm with you Like that a lot, Billy Corgan. I, I don't think I've ever heard this song. Oh, you're gonna before. recognize, I think, the middle of the song. We're gonna have to turn it back on. But um, Billy Corgan, hotter with hair or without hair? It's funny because by nine, well, I was just gonna he was say bald. He had shaved his head bald, yeah. and he had long hair right. in the Gish era. And then he goes to this transitionally, and then he shaves it all off and starts going with like a long uh, Far East kind of black cloak look on stage. Mm-hmm. So he looks like. Uh, some medieval vampire or something. I, it, it, <laughs> yeah, it got. It started to get stranger. I was gonna say that like shaving your head definitely works for some guys, and then 
Certain guys, it doesn't quite play, and I don't think it played for Corrigan. And I know he probably made the decision because he was in trouble. Uh, he's probably losing it in the power alleys or maybe up top. But I always thought he looked a little bit, I don't know, goofy uh, once he went shaved. Well, in this era, though, this this haircut, this is like this is like a pixie cut. He has like the same stylist as Winona Ryder. I feel like this wasn't working for him either. So I think... Yeah. I think it's the lesser of two evils. I mean, the long hair and gish was pretty good. It's funny, too, now that That's I'm thinking sh- about it, in the early 90s, that was kind of, for rock music, bands were kind of like front men and otherwise were kind of going with short hair, which, mm-hmm. off the top of my head, I can't think of I'm sure there are some, but everybody in the 70s and into the 80s, for the majority of the 80s, big bands all had long hair. The Smiths. Here we go. Yep. Oh, nice. It's got a little bit of a today vibe where it crashes in. Yeah, this is great. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, I know. This, this is the this is the uh, this is the stretch. If you're seeing them live, this is the the chunk you don't want to miss. Oh, never saw them live. I think they're still together. No, they are. They put out. They probably see. They put out an album last year. I was gonna ask Zach if he's heard it. Nope. No. Yeah, where are you at on the pumpkins, uh, Shaq? Are you? Well, n- nobody's really in on the pumpkins anymore. But did did you hang around? Because uh, we did melancholy and the infinite sadness on this show, and I know you had said that you thought that was a definitely inferior to the first two records. Did you stay with them beyond? Uh, I remember you know, being the late really 90s when he turned into the goth vampire. I was I, uh, well. I mean, the, yeah, he he was doing that look by whatever festival he was in, which I guess would have been Lollapalooza or whatever. I saw that. Um, as well, and by that point he was bald, and I was already I was already getting to be too cool for for Corgan and company at that point. But yes, I I didn't love the the double album as much as I know it was popular. And again, maybe that uh, is because I'm I was too cool to concede that um, that this now wildly popular band was still on my playlist. But um, yeah, no, I did, I wasn't as into that. But I do remember being really really excited to hear it when it was coming out. Uh, and the first track was. Um, what was the first Bullet track? That was Bullet with but, uh, Right, exactly, yeah. The world is a vampire. I was about to say something about vampires. That I can't even remember what it was, but right. Um, all right, let's uh, move on now. Here is the the ballad, of course, uh, on Siamese Dream that I think is one of their most well-known songs, perhaps. Yeah. I don't know. Here, here is Disarm.
Mm. This song always hits me right in the feels, as they say. Love this song. You're the only person I know who says it. I mean, I know it's a saying. You're the one who says it. Well, it does. It, it's a song that makes me feel things. And uh, I think this is the first, like, pumpkin song that would be played on the radio when I was, when, uh, you know, around this time where I was like, oh, I love this song. Um, and I think it's perfect on this album, ex- exactly where it is, right in the middle. Um, it's kind of like a palate cleanser on the album, but also it does more than cleanse the palate. It like shows another dimension to the band. I knew you were about to say palate cleanser, first of all, but um, uh, and I'm gonna and now I'm gonna say louper. No, but for no good reason. I just wanted to say it. But um, the um, yeah, this one is too far afield from the rest of the album for me. It's a good song, but it's also like a heavier movie that you enjoy. It's not breezy enough to fit with the rest of the record. To me, um, it's kind of like Jeremy for Pearl Jam. I, I, I'm not. I'm all for range for a band um, and showing different colors and everything. Uh, this one, this one wore out pretty quick for me. I think this set. What about you, I Bob? Think this got us. I mean, I, I liked the song when it was a single on the radio all the time when we were kids, and I don't. Know, I think it kind of paved the way for the songs that were coming on Melancholy, like Thirty Three. And tonight, tonight, like this is kind of the precursor to all of that. Like, I think just kind of showing that Smashing Pumpkins was more than a band that's kind of quiet, loud, like doing the Today thing, or you know, Sarah Brock. Like, this is their this is their mainstream song, which is funny to think about the early to mid '90s. How that was pop music. That's what was playing on the you know Z100s of the world was Disarm. And I think that was like right. the most poppy song they had at the time. I like. Well, today definitely, I think, was the Z100. They were, I mean, they it? were both, but like Z100, which was playing Mariah Carey, would go from that and just segue seamlessly into Disarm. I, right. I like. I like when a band you uh, employs some brass. Um, I don't like it when they do the string section because I feel bad for the symphony people. I always feel like Guns N' Roses, like those people, like they, they love being there for oh, November horrible. rain. And I, I, my, I just, all I can think about the whole time, I can't enjoy anything that's had because I just feel like these schnooks must be like, what the hell? Why did we have to put our tuxedos on? I'm an accomplished <laughs> world-class musician. And I now I'm backing up this freak for just for, for like a verse or there. Like, that's the other thing. It's like, if you drag me out, I, I should get like 15 minutes of playing time. Not not the one verse you're throwing. <laughs> Me and 40 of my pals dragged our ass uh, over here to sit on stage with you just to make you look good, uh, uh, Slash. No, thank you. See I, <laughs> see, I love it when a band that isn't Guns N' Roses has one song on the album that has the strings, and then they go and tour. But they're not going to go tour with a symphony because they're like a mid-tier band. So they have to find a way to do the song without the strings, and it never sounds. <laughs> they don't, they don't want to. They don't want to pay the entire band. So they're like, oh, "Let's get a keyboard out here." I don't know. Let's figure this one out. Plus, you have to like keep in mind that the the usually the rock band or the the principal songwriter, usually the lead singer, it does not have the same musical knowledge as what these people are used to. So when you're in the symphony hall and you have the conductor telling you all the notes to hit. 
And then you have some bonehead axle rolls. And it's like, do the thing where you go. And it's just like you have to listen to this complete asshole uh, explain to you what he wants it to sound like without having any actual knowledge of how music is played. All right. Got us all fired Better gig for these guys, though. Having to go, you know, back up a rock song that you don't connect to at all. Or getting called into like Warner Brothers and they put you in this big room and they're showing like Corky Romano 2 and you have the violin and you have to score the movie along to it. Like you have the music in front of you. That's What's tough. more demeaning as somebody who went to Juilliard? I don't know why he had to go the route of Catan there as an example because, you know, that guy's put in the work. No, it's, because I'm, it's because I'm currently, while I'm here in Georgia, I'm writing the screenplay for Corky Romano 2 on spec. <laughs> and I'm hoping that that's going to be my big play. I, I also like the uh, I, I, if there were a Bi- Billy Corgan for commercial um, for uh, commercial jingles, like a perfectionist who's like Optima Tax Relief. <laughs> no, we didn't get it right. Get your shit together, you know, like that that guy's like keep stomping it down. Like you got, we got it, Randy. We can get out of here, you know. It's like we've been here 14 hours for a diarrhea commercial. (laughs) All right, here is Soma. All right, I see what you're saying, Dave. So you got Disarm, and now you have another really slow burner here i i I think it maybe it heats up this sounds this is we're starting off very this is a this is a song if you're not familiar with gish this is a song that would uh fit nicely on that one in fact it sounds almost too close to uh a track that's on that one gish was one of those albums that you know you went in order you found Gish first, and then you followed. For people that were getting into alternative music, that was one of those albums that you couldn't find at the record store. That if you did see it, it was kind of like, oh wow, that's the one from before. Like it was one of the cool. It was kind of like Incesticide or for Green Day, like Kerplunk. You'd have to go to like the weird off-brand record store to find it. Is this song heat up? I'm gonna skip ahead here. It gets going, yes. You just missed where it heats up there. Yeah, there you go. This is how the artist usually intends for their music to be heard, being talked over by three guys (laughs) as Dan skips around on a track to find where it is. Oh, please, like, Billy Corgan's somewhere, like, organizing his professional wrestling league uh, while leaving voicemails for Jessica Simpson that will never be returned. He should be so lucky that someone's talking about oh, come him. come on. I will say, when I worked at MTV, he was one of the only people that I consistently heard the entire time as being, like, <laughs> the worst guy to deal with at all times. Really? Well, that does not does not surprise me. Now, do you feel differently about the uh, singles listing of this album? No, because he did it right, because he's a genius. And, you know, he put that on track three because he knew what he was doing, and he started with Sarah Brock because he knew what he was doing. They also, you know, the, the thing that is a weird connection um, is, uh, I don't know if you guys like uh, Jane's Addiction and Nothing Shocking 
um, in particular, but there it's some uh, spiritual connection between those two bands, even though one's an LA band and another one's a Chicago band from essentially different worlds. But they 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 seem like they come from the same place a little bit. Yeah, that makes sense. Same spooky, inhuman mm-hmm. kind of vocals on it, and you know, aspirational. Yeah, like hippie veering kind of uh kind of worldview in, in in a lot of ways and you know borderline pretentious and flowery vaguely poetic kind of lyrics that don't make any sense mm-hmm. you want to talk about a band that nobody talks about anymore jane's addiction was one of the biggest bands of the early 90s that you always heard as being like a big influence and important and i can't remember the last time i heard anybody say those words out it's funny because I weird. saw them and it's I went weird. to see them for out of nostalgia here in LA and just thought like, ah, listen, I like nothing shocking. And, uh, um, mm-hmm. just especially as one of my, one of my favorite records. And I thought ah, I missed them. I, they, they had passed through in my, before I left uh, Chicago, they toured, um, and I tried to get tickets and couldn't get him. And, and so I thought, ah, I got to go see him. And man, they were just great. Just great. You know, 10, 15 yeah. years at least past the window you're talking about. And those first couple bars of uh, the mountain song um, still give me mm. the feels, Hanses. I was going to say. Let Dave sing. Let Dave sing. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is Dave's <laughs> thing. Go ahead, Dave. No, I think you did it. No, no, give no. Give me I'm... a little Perry. <laughs> um, you know, those, those Super Bowl parties, Dave, you know, Super Bowl used to be a big event that we got to go to and things. And then the, the pandemic happened, but uh, the direct TV um, party uh, last year, Foo Fighters headlined it and it was a great show. Uh, Foo Fighters, uh, you know, really are a great live band. And then they bring out Perry Farrell and then they, he rips into mountain song and he sound, he still sounded like Perry Farrell. He still looked like Perry Farrell, at least from 50 yards away. And it was like, all right, that's good. That's a bucket list thing. Uh, to be able to check off that was uh, that was that was a great. Uh, you were cool that night. There. You were cool that night. So you got to see that. Have you ever? No. If, if believe me, and Dave's been there. Anybody at Directv Super Bowl parties? Not cool. <laughs> I'm proud not to cool. say here is. I'm proud to say I never no. went to any of those corporate giant ten a, a thousand people tented events. Any Super Bowl. I went out to dinner with the likes of you. That's what I did. I'm, I'm with you on that but I, I if there's a big time band that I respect I, I would seek it out and I, the foos did qualify um, alright let's move on with Geek USA I get what you're saying Dave you're all about the meal and I respect that about the car thing you were talking about earlier dave Mm -hmm. with uh, child safety i feel like each decade since like let's say the 60s let's start at the 70s it's gotten progressively uh tighter in terms of regulations 
And I found out, so in the 70s, you're sliding around back and forth. In the 80s, you probably had a seatbelt on, but it wasn't going too nuts. The 90s, you the child seats are more prevalent. And now, like my wife told me the other day that um, you, you have to be eight years old to not be in a child seat by law here in California. It's like eight years old. It's crazy. It's damn near puberty. Right. We've blown, <laughs> we've blown past that, blown past the uh, reasonable stage, and now we're we've overcorrected for our misdeeds uh, forty years ago. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we were. I think. But you asked the question, we didn't answer. We were. I think the last, the cutoff of being in the back of the stage and not having a seatbelt on and being able to like look backwards as the car was driving forwards and give people the finger behind you. And then when they pull up, you're worried that they're going to tell on you. That kind of thing. We were the last ones that were able to do that. Now it would be, you'd be on the cover of the LA Times if you put your kid on the back <laughs> of an SUV true. without a seatbelt. Forget it. It's over. You're a monster. You're a monster. You're canceled. Yeah. You're done. <laughs> yeah, Mo Damashek other... is definitely listening since she listens to every second of everything I ever do. Um, and I don't mind saying this now so that she can hear it. Bad parenting. And, and, I mean, 2020 hindsight, but... <laughs> But you endangered, you, en- you endangered young lives uh, for years on end, Mo. Shame on you. At what point? Does Mo really listen to everything, Dave? He listens to everything. She and the old man listen to every podcast. Hey, Mo. When I first, when I first listened. That is so amazing. Oh, here you go. This one goes out. Oh, this to is Mo soundtracking Dabbish. the story. Yeah. <laughs> this is soundtracking. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, go on. I want to hear more about this thing. She, um, I mean, the the weirdest one is she. Well, listen, when I was the thirteenth man on the on the basketball team, she would come and she'd be one of the few parents in the stands, and I would say, "Why do you come to these games? I don't play. I'm one of the few people who doesn't play in the game." She said, "Oh, I enjoy it. It's nice to see you out there with your friends." Um, when I first oh. got here and I uh, f- first got to LA, one of the first writing gigs I had was on BattleBots. I, uh, you know, of course, yes. the, the robots fight oh each other. Yeah. The robots fight each other, but, you know, the pattern, <laughs> you know, that's, that, was, that was all Dave Damashek. And uh, Mo would sit there, apparently, I was told by my sisters, would sit there and they would have to watch the episode um, just so that when the credits rolled, she could cheer when my name would pop up. <laughs> Moms are the best. They, they, they truly are. Um, here's mayonnaise. And by the way, that was Geek Rock US, a uh, Geek USA. Part of that, here's mayonnaise. I like this. Love this one. Yeah. Really good. It, it feels like the album's now settled into a groove. Um, and I'm enjoying it. 
Dave, were you too cool to appreciate this at the time? There's something, no, there's <laughs> something There's something that always struck me about these uh, these songs at this point in the album, um, that uh, they're, they're almost like ballads, except they have super fuzzy, you know, plainly rock guitar underneath the whole time. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, this, just to muss it up a little bit. Right, it's a distinctive sound. It's also interesting. I'm thinking about Jane's Addiction. What do they all have in common? Pavement is a seminal band for alternative music. Um, and I guess, I, I, I bet you anybody from any generation plays this game and they maybe on some level fool themselves into thinking like, I was watching the OG for that style of music and everything that followed it, every ensuing iteration was a, was a lesser version of it. But maybe on some level that's true. I was going to see Rage Against the Machine in these uh, in these smaller or mid-sized venues in Chicago, and you know, within a year or three, I mean, there, you, you, there there was corn and all that garbage that came off of it, and it, right. and it was it, it, and, and it made me sick. People were like, "I'm into rage, and I'm into corn, and I mean, like, how dare you put those two in the same breath? One one's about uh, social injustice and and true anger. Why? I mean, and also spectacular." music what i had to be angry about as a 24 year old white guy in chicago i'm not sure in hindsight but but you could really get swept up in that whereas the other stuff was just was just garbage not the band garbage which is a little underrated they were actually halfway decent in the mid 90s i'm talking about you know exact i can't even think of the names of those other bands i just hated them all so much the oh is it disturbed or whatever yeah is that was one of the disturbed corn limpus limp biscuit that's what i'm thinking of that's what i'm thinking limp biscuit all that music sucks so bad it was really uh it was the worst and also that's my favorite era not that you asked but of of hip-hop i was i really liked the beastie boys and i really liked the late 80s public enemy but that okay that's fine we could just go no i loved uh (laughs) uh, tribe called quest and uh, De La Soul and those kind of psychedelic kind of um, uh, kind of hip hop bands, and I got to go and see them, and then that created a whole kind of a sound as well, or at least a new style mm. of rap. You know, ever since it's been teased that you were going to do this podcast, I've been secretly hoping that we would be able to get Dan to listen to Pavement together because I know that you're a Pavement fan, and I love Pavement. They're one of the bands of this era that I will fall down a pavement wormhole every every few months. You'll fall down on the pavement. That was yeah, funny. Yeah, there you go. And just Nailed want it. to listen to nothing but Stephen Malkmus. And I'm in for Dan that, will never, yeah. Yeah, Dan will never appreciate them. Don't put words in my mouth for the sake of your setup here. I am totally, I am totally down. I actually like a handful of pavement songs. <clears throat> They're one of those bands that I get how important they are to... Um, the movement where they came from in alternative music, but it, it never spoke to me. Um, and, and sometimes I struggle with bands that I, I feel are a little more lo-fi or don't really go for big hooks or anthemic type music. So it's sometimes it's a disconnect for me, but I respect the pavement. Oh, like, I, think, and I would absolutely I, go down that road. I think, yeah, I think you should here the thing that's funny. It's kind of the, the thing I was talking about when pavement was really big with their first few records. Then those people that were in on them uh, real early on, they don't like Bright in the Corners or Tear Twilight. 
Right. I like those yeah. ones. I like those ones, but there were a lot of pretentious people around me who were like, ah, they're 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 done already. They're, 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 you know, like these are great albums. And by the way, listen to them. You'll notice again a funny spiritual similarity between them and Fish. You'll hear a lot of the same sounds um, between them, and it's funny. I feel validated because I think I read Steve Malkmus talking about liking Fish, and in fact, uh, I think they did something together some but also listen to a band called the silver jews bob uh, oh yeah Miss shows up on american water um and it's uh with david berman who uh, died a couple few years ago but um american water's a Reb- a, a, a gem that people i don't think most people Reb- have probably heard rebel jew is the song i relate most to <laughs> <laughs> especially during your uh cool yeah, just walk around the lower east yeah. side listening to the silver jews <laughs> rebel jew I have to say there's one uh, now mayonnaise and we just listened to space boy, which actually was written for uh, Billy Corgan's autistic brother. Um, by the way, thank you, Wikipedia. Um, it def- this is a, 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 a pretty chill album uh, in parts. And I, I guess I wasn't expecting that. And I, is that a departure from Gish? Does it not have that many moments? Has the same changes throughout. It, 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 it does. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it As it wears on there, that too. yeah, they're indulgent. The movie, uh, there, there are moments when it, it stretches into indulgence, where it's like, all right, let's uh, let's uh, bring it on home here, here, Corgan. Yeah, let's uh, speed it along here. Yeah. All right, here's hills. Here's silver. Fuck. Hello. All right, and this is on my this is on my radar already. The song is eight minutes and forty two seconds long. Is that necessary this deep in the album, Bill? I gotta ask. This is the most pronounced stretch of what I'm talking about. All right, I'm gonna move to four minutes in. Oh God, it's one of those. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right let's check out 643 all right i already know what this is all about oh there we go good timing This is one of those um, albums, by the way, where when they talk about they would spend three days on 40 seconds of one song in the studio. And uh, many of the songs have as many as 100 guitar parts compressed into a single like four minute song. It's pretty hardcore. Bob's getting a call. Maybe a little maybe it may be a little too much time in the studio. Ultimately. Let's, let's be honest. Yes, that could be that, that could be the case. I think we can agree that we didn't need the five minute uh, downturn there in that number this late into the record. Yes, uh, let's uh, you have Sweet Sweet, which is a minute thirty nine. Um, and then the closing song. Here we go is Luna. Let's listen in. As we bring it in for a close Siamese dream. Uh, 
You guys were, at this point, about three years from what I assume was your heyday as uh, Charlie Hayes and that era Yankees finally gets over the hump. You guys must have been up on cloud nine listening to Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah. Nice moment yep. in time. Yanks Charlie winning Hayes it every Yankees. year. The Charlie Hayes Yankees, as we referred to them at the time. Charlie Hayes. I don't think. I was thinking yeah, him with Charlie that big Hayes butt. I just thinking I him with cat, that big yeah. butt squeeze in the last out. That's yes. A, yes, of course. No, and I think they they got him in a trade from the Pittsburgh Pirates, right, Dave? He, uh, he came over in a, a summer trade. Is that right? He was Pirates first, and then I think so. Okay, I believe. Yes, it. I think they got him from the Pirates. His son is um, now. His you know, son it's is funny. The one good player now. Oh really? Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that That's amazing. It's funny, Dave, because like. Lemieux is your guy. You know, he's your all-time favorite athlete, I think, right? If you had to pick one. Oh, yeah, no doubt. For an athlete, yeah. So, for me and for Bob, um, Don Mattingly was that guy. And the fact that Mattingly retired at age 34 with the bad back in 95, then they win the title in 96, and then three more after that. As much as I enjoyed that run, I never quite enjoyed it as much as I probably should have and could have because of the timing of Donnie baseball's career. Oh yeah. That, I never got over that. That makes sense. Yeah. That's it. It's great though. When you're in, like I say, you're, you know, in your early adulthood and everything, you know, when you land and you're in a good place like Chicago in the early to mid nineties, it was so fun. But then you feel like you're in the center of the universe when Smashing Pumpkins are huge and, and you're with Michael Jordan and then he retires and he plays sure. for the White Sox. And so you can, so, so that's all going on. Then he comes back and they're winning titles every year. It was, uh, it felt like, um, like it may as well have been you, you know, basking in the reflected glory that. Uh, Did you get to see MJ a lot in that era? Not live. Like, I didn't get to Chicago Stadium. I didn't go, no, I went to Chicago yeah. Stadium a lot to go watch hockey though. And um, that was one of the great things ever. That's, in fact, one of the main reasons I ended up moving to Chicago was because in 92, when I was still in school, um, I went and watched game four, the ultimate uh, game of that 92 cup final against the Blackhawks. And um, and I, you know, I was up in the standing room section of Chicago Stadium. And I remember it was a furious and uh, electric game. And Dirk Graham got a hat trick in the first period for the Hawks and it was a shootout back and forth and the guy next to me in standing room and I was warned by the friend who got me a ticket he's a Chicago native and he said this might be hard for you but I just got to tell you you do not want to express any joy in the direction of the Penguins because you will get worked over and the the Pens had won the first three games of the series (laughs) and everything I thought ah they'll be settled it was intense that is the greatest place I've ever seen uh, an, an indoor sporting event was the old Chicago Stadium. It was so loud mm. when they would play the national anthem and it would start and you would think, oh, this, this is unbelievable how loud it is. And it would get increasingly loud, not because of the organ or the guy singing, but because the crowd would somehow elevate with each one. And it got to the point about halfway through where your body would vibrate from the noise of, of, of how loud it was in the joint. And when Dirk Graham 
scored his third goal of the first period. The guy next to me took the hat off my head and I caught his arm <laughs> before he could throw it down to the ice. And, and I said, no, 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 no. And he, and he said, what, what, what's going on? You got to throw it on. I'm like, I'm, I said, I'm not rooting for the Blackhawks. And he's like, well, then who are you rooting for? Which was, it seemed like an unnecessary question, but, um, Seems a little and, unnecessary. Right. and by the end, by the intermission, it was, I had to explain myself to everybody up there. It was like, this guy's a, this guy's a Penguins fan. And this is true. The Penguins hold on. They survive. They win the Stanley Cup. Mike Lang, the play-by-play announcer, says, Lord Stanley, Lord Stanley, get me the brandy. They barely, they barely survive, and they, they win. And as Lemieux and company are, are shaking hands on the ice with the Blackhawks, I am in the standing room section going through a handshake line with all the, uh, the Hawks loyalists who'd been going there for decades and had been spinning their sob stories about, like, I was here in 70 when Tony O let in the, the goal from the blue line that cost us the Stanley Cup. And, uh, and they were like, hey, let me tell you something, young man. You handled yourself with class. <laughs> like these sh- those, old, those, old, those old school Chicago kind of guys. Like, oh, I love that. Young man, you handled, your, you, you handled yourself with, <laughs> with class. And I congratulate you on having the best player in the world. You know, that, that kind of thing. Next year, uh, I hope I it's another it. story kind of a thing. But man, yeah, it's the ba- I, I I don't even know how That's many nice. of them are still there, but I got to tell you, man, from the Cubby Bear, I saw Fishbone live at the Cubby Bear with like 100 other people to 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 the Riv, to the Vic, to the Metro, to Aragon, to Shubas. It is Jazz Showcase, the Green Mill, the Double Door I know is gone. Lounge Axe is one of the all-time greats. Um, man, it was just the best. It was what uh, to be in your twenties in the nineties, seeing the bands I got to see. It was, uh, it was really dynamite. Some of the best times I've ever had. Did you, did you ever see Cindy Lauper? I never saw Lauper, but I did in one of his final things, one of the final shows he ever did. I did get him, did get to hear him come out and say, hello, I'm Johnny Cash. That, That was, that's a, that was a big one for me to see, uh, to see cash before he checked out we can't we, my favorite no ahead, you Bob. please now i was gonna say it's uh one of my favorite check lines you're not just trying to survive this life by check uh, you want to live right what, what's the exact line it sounds like that's what you were doing in chicago in the 90s a lot of living yeah a lot of living at the expense of doing anything meaningful uh during work hours but yes i uh i i, I did live it up but good with my pals there and I, like i say really i what you know what see it's exactly what we talked about a few weeks ago it is a recurring theme for me i do remember sitting around that crummy apartment uh, just north of Wrigley Field with my pal Reggie and the other guys who would come over. Of course, there weren't uh, girls with us very often. But um, I do remember sitting around with them and really having what we thought were deep conversations about uh, about our purpose, uh, walking the big blue marble and saying, listen, let's mm. just figure out how do we all work together? And I, I, I like uh, my big, my big, my big plan. This was, is so reality bites. So my, reality bites. My big plan was I, 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 and I really was advocating for this. I said we could do one of two things. Let's all, meaning like uh, you know the core gang of like six or so of us. Um, and and by the way, like a few months after I moved to Chicago, my sister Debbie from Pittsburgh, who went to Vermont, she moved to Chicago because she came to visit and loved it. And then 
my cousins moved to Chicago. And so it was like, really, I had my actual family in Chicago with me. But we used to always talk about, um, let's all just write down one, two, three, the three cities we'd most want to live in. And then we'll score them collectively. And whichever one's a winner, nobody gets to balk. You, we all move there. And we'll just live the rest of our lives. And then I had a better plan. And it's a good idea. And Bob, maybe you could write this up as a uh, sitcom. Is... Um, mm-hmm. We all moved to the worst <laughs> after, city after, in America. After I'm done with Romano, too. Right. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, I, I said, let's all just move to, like, Terre Haute, Indiana, or some bum town like that. And people would say, why would we want to go there? Because it'll stink, but we'll have each other. But inside of a decade, we'll rule the town. You know? Like... Uh, Big fish, small mm, pound. Yeah. A, a, that's exactly and right. Like, like, wild, like, like, like wild, wild country. Well, right. Or like uh, Brad Wesley in, in Roadhouse, like, you know, like Roadhouse, like there's not rip some throats while you're there. There's nothing there's not, you know, they want to do something. The best cooler in the business wants to do something about it. But when he talks to 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 the elders of the community, they're like, we got to be. He's like, we got to take down Brad Wesley. And they're like, nothing you can do about it. He owns the cops in America. Like it's, a, it's America in 1989. Like, what are we to do? He owns the cops like. <laughs> what? That's the end of it. We're powerless. <laughs> well, we can't there's do a, anything. A monster truck goes through a, a car showroom in that movie too, and there's no repercussions. We got to we got to turn them over to the feds. Like, nope, the the, the local authorities will get in the way, and it'll, and it'll never get there. And by the way, they do get the last laugh <laughs> because then they take his own shotguns out of his house and shoot him dead in cold blood right before the cops get there. And then the cops come in and they're like. Hey, what happened here? And they're like, we didn't see anything. And then they all chuckle to each other. And then the movie ends. They just committed murder. <laughs> just committed it's, an insane, murder. it's an insane ending. The guy who owns the cops is laying dead. You would think they would exact some revenge for that. But I don't know. Anyway, see, I, and his, that's another. his most trusted henchman is right. His most trusted henchman is 500 yards away, laying by the pond with his throat ripped out, too. There's like a lot of murder going on. Maybe the authorities need prob- to be better involved. There was involved. probably a kid in the back without a seatbelt on, too, just to really add a problem. <laughs> and what about Kelly Lynch? She's supposed to be his lady love. And as soon as he like the, the bad guy pulls a gun on him, so he takes his throat. You know, I don't know if that's excessive, but either way, Took it. he takes his throat, drops it into the pond right across 50 yards across the way from Brad Wesley's manor. Um, and uh, and Kelly Lynch gets mad at him. Like, what are you doing, man? You just killed that guy's <laughs> like, hey, babe, how about a little backup here? The guy was going to kill me, you creep. You know, should have right. thrown her in the lake. He also too. said right before. He says, you know, I used to fuck guys like you in prison. Like, right. so, I mean, clearly the guy was posing a, a serious threat uh, to the Swayze character. All right, let's let's get back on track. Right, okay. uh, Shaq, you, you said it all. You killed it. Uh, thank you for well, joining us. This was long awaited and, and it paid off in a big dude. way. And we need you. We need your help uh, right now, Shaq. Um, we have a throwback podcast playlist. And every episode, uh, we take one song from the album that we covered to add to the playlist. And when you are a guest on the show, uh, you have the esteemed honor to make that selection based on what we just listened to the 6 million selling uh, Siamese dream. What is the song we are adding to the playlist? Before you say it though, you have a second to think. We have to thank everybody who makes this podcast possible on patreon.com slash throwback pod. Thank you to everybody kicking in $2 a month, $6 a month to vote in polls. Everybody from the bottom to our top tier sponsors, Courtney and Wyatt, Bruno, the sponsor up there in Canada, and 
Pliny and Nancy down in Australia. Thank you guys for keeping this little pod afloat. You're the best. And I'm also going to use this opportunity to say that I am responsible for all of this tonight. Because when young Dan has started at the NFL, I'm a few beers deep right now. I'm drinking alone in my sad apartment. And yeah, take it Georgia. easy here, Bob. What do yeah, you got? Drinking my, <laughs> drinking my Terrapin beer from Athens, Georgia. And, um, you know, I just want to go back in time and remind you, Dan, that when you started at the NFL, I was a big Corolla podcast guy. And I knew Shaq mm. from that. And I said, oh, shit, have you ever seen this guy, Dave Damashek? And you're like, yeah, I think I've seen him around. I'm like, you have to go introduce yourself to him. He's fucking hilarious. He's on the Corolla podcast all the time. And you were like, all right, I'm going to do that. So I am responsible for all of this. Well, I didn't listen to you, but it was really nice thought. It was a nice thought and a nice compliment to pay. I was a fan. It was very cool. It was very cool that you were working (laughs) with this guy. And then he was so kind to take you. Uh, under his wing, onto his podcast. And of we don't course. need to relive all of that, but it's all me. How drunk it's are you right me. now, Bob? I like me. this. I've been working 15-hour days. I have not please, been Please around. cry. Please cry. That would be great for the show. People give it extra money song, if you do that. It depends, what's, tell us, it depends what song you pick for the podcast, for the uh, playlist. Tell, tell, tell us what it was like when you realized you weren't actually cool. Just take us through that moment. we, we got to save that for like a... 2004 album where we could just kind of relive. Right. <laughs> Boy, all right. That's got to be a pretty big fall from grace. At least I never was. <laughs> I, I was never up on a pedestal with, I, I never saw the man in the mirror up on a pedestal. So it wasn't a big fall for me. I've always been a loser. Mm. So, right. Yeah, no, it's not exactly. It's not, it's not a good time. It's not a good time making that fall. All right, Shaq, and I, I want you to don't feel pressured um, to you know pick the, a single, but abs- absolutely, if the single is one that you love the most, it's really just the song that you feel like uh, would really make an expert addition to a, a, a random playlist playing in a backyard on a Saturday while you're grilling some meats and shooting some corn. I, that's exactly right, because, I, I mean, for me, sentimentally, the one that means the most is Chair Brock. It's my favorite uh, number on the, on the album. But I think removed from the, uh, from the whole thing and what sounds about I'm going to go with Rocket. And plus, Bob says that's his number one, too. So I, so I think uh, that's where we'll go. Is that good? Oh, that's very yes. good. Absolutely. I I was hoping you were going to do that, and I think you're a natural because we that's typically how we do it. If, if a song connects uh, with uh, uh, two of us in the room and is a little left of center in terms of a choice, that's probably the move we want to use. We want to go with that song. So Rocket is the next uh, selection to the Throwback Podcast playlist, and uh, make sure you check that out wherever you get uh, your uh, music. And uh, make sure you check out Dave Damashek and all the great stuff Sheck is doing right now. Um, you want to give get a little plug you in? You can't here, Dave? remember it. You can't remember it. I you couldn't even Bob Bob can't be responsible for everything. Yeah, go ahead. Let's see hands who's take a guess. Go ahead. What what are what are the two main <laughs> podcasts I'm doing right now? All right. Well, I know you do Dave's of Thunder, but it's on hiatus because your buddy's writing those pages all the okay. time. Okay. Uh, but you do the Minus 3 podcast, okay, so good. All get right. off it. And that focuses on sports in the Northeast, so eat it. Um, and then you do the Extra Points show, 
uh, with Cousin Sal. There you go. All right. right. Good for you. Nailed I that. Wa- you need to. How about that? You need to come. How about stick that in your pipe and smoke it? Well, uh, you know what? You need to come on minus three sooner rather than later so we can figure out what Joe Douglas and company are supposed to do with the second overall pick. Somehow right, they're going like to screw that. that one up. But, um, yeah, let's uh, let's give it to that. Has, on they three. probably will. Jack had an organ S. I'm very disappointed text already to send to you. But now you've redeemed yourself. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad I did. And uh, Dave, thank you again for joining us. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, until next time, uh, you know, good luck yourselves.